Hi everyone, this week we had the real pleasure to talk to Dr. Marvin Belzer from UCLA Mindful Awareness Research Centre. Marvin's been teaching mindfulness meditation for 20 years and whilst an Associate Professor of Philosophy at Bowling Green University, developed a for-credit mindfulness course for students. Our conversation took a number of twists and turns but looked at the research into meditation and how he's applied it for students. As ever, if you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and a review on iTunes. Hi, Marvin. Hello. How are good you? Good to talk with you, Harry. I'm fine. Thank you. How are you? Yeah, good, thanks. Um, so to kick things off, I just want to ask about what your kind of personal and professional experience within in and around mental yeah, health is. So I work now at, at UCLA in a center called the Mindful Awareness Research Center. Our mission is to offer education in mindfulness, uh, both and bringing more mindful awareness into daily life. Uh, I've worked here for 10 years. Uh, before this, I was a philosophy professor. I uh, taught at a university in Ohio for about 20 years and um, worked in logic, philosophy of mind, philosophy of science, things like that. I had an interest in meditation, though, going back to when I was in graduate school. So I had my own personal meditation practice, about 20 years ago, I began teaching a uh, course for credit as a philosophy class, but it was a basic mindfulness meditation course. And then 10 years ago, I came here, uh, worked with Diana Winston and Susan Smalley, Mike Irwin, and uh, we teach uh, basic courses in how to meditate, how to use mindfulness with physical pain, with difficult emotions. And we're also part of, you know, we do our courses here as part of numerous research projects on the effects of mindfulness practice. Um, having said that, I, I, I myself am not a scientist, so I know some about the science, but my real expertise is in the basics of um, how to meditate, the nuts and bolts of mindfulness meditation. That's really interesting because I got into to mindfulness and meditation um, through pain as well. So I the way I got into it was through um, was through yeah chronic pain, and then seeing 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 a psychologist who suggested, uh, amongst other stuff, but uh, mindfulness was one of the things he suggested, and I found it really helpful. Um, and I suppose that's what your the research the the centre's doing is backed up, or that's right there. Um, so that's one of the areas, probably the most um, practical and vivid application of mindfulness is in helping manage physical pain. And uh, if you like, we can talk about kind of my understanding of how to do it and how it works. But yeah, it's, it's, yeah, so it's, I often, even in giving an introductory lecture, I will talk about how we use mindfulness with pain, even if the audience isn't there for that, because it does kind of help us illustrate how we practice with anything that comes to mind, especially when it's difficult. So briefly, like my understanding of how to do the mindfulness meditation is can be broken into two parts. The first is we, we use our ability to focus our attention and we do it in a somewhat unusual way because we 
ask ourselves to focus on things like the feel of the breath or the feel of our hands or feet or the ambient sounds, things that don't need to be paid attention to. But there's something about the mental activity, focusing, sustaining attention with something relatively neutral that helps the mind to calm down, to become more settled, you know, more peaceful, more concentrated, and so forth. And here is where, you know, most forms of meditation begin this way, one way or another, with using this capacity to direct our attention to something simple. And so it might be a mantra, you know, a phrase in the mind. It, it, there can be lots of ways to do it. Um, and the, the thing to emphasize is we can do it. You know, it's not like sometimes people think to get going in meditation, I somehow need to figure out how to clear my mind or something like that. And it's just like, no, we can't do that just by willpower, typically, and we don't have to. And so in the midst of thoughts and emotions and all, all everything going on, we still seem to have this capacity to focus our attention somewhere. Yeah, I can't remember who said it, but someone said the, like, the actual essence of the practice is when you realize that you've wandered off and you bring yourself back to whatever yeah. you're focusing yeah, on. Yeah, exactly. So it does take some effort but it's real gentle and it's quite doable right and so just tuning into the feel of the breath it's not like trying to feel everything it's not analyzing it's not keeping track it's just can i feel some sensations right now in connection with my normal breath in the abdomen the chest at the nose so that's the first part and then the second you already brought in there is just like try it we can do it but try as we might to do it our attention will get pulled away so we'll start daydreaming, we'll start planning. And I like to, you know, it's like, this is part of being intelligent. I like to emphasize, it's not like we're really failing. It's just our normal capacities as human beings to keep track of what needs to be, you know, tracked, kicks in. And so, you know, we do try to stay with the breath, but we will get pulled away. And so the second part of mindfulness practice on this little model I'm using is, we include whatever pulls our attention. We, we recognize I'm thinking, I'm planning, I'm stressed out, with, with, I'm anxious. With, with these emotions, we try to feel the sensations in our bodies that are a component of the emotions, but in a gentle way, a simple way. It's not super analytical. And then this is where the application to pain comes in, because sometimes it will be physical pain that draws our attention. And Somewhat counterintuitively, we just gently open to the raw sensations of the pain, maybe just for a few seconds, and then, yeah, we reconnect back to the breath or whatever we're using. So kind of like the model of a pendulum. We focus somewhere like the breath or the feet. We will get pulled away. Whatever it is, we include it just gently, even when it, we wish it weren't there, and then no obligation to try to fix it or change it, and then gently reconnect. So that's... That's and so the the that's the in my understanding that's the gist of how we practice um, mindfulness meditation generally, and then that application to working with pain is is both the permission to turn attention away from the pain to come back to the breath or something neutral, and that willingness to try to just be patiently attentive to what the pain feels like, and both both parts of this can be counterintuitive because. You know, we don't want to feel pain. We we want somehow we want some magic to make it go away. And obviously, if we can find it, good. You know, and so 
you know, medications can help. But um, this has been shown, uh, I understand, you know, in the science to um, help people manage the pain. And it's, it doesn't necessarily make the pain go away, but it can help manage it. That's definitely my understanding of it, that um, I suppose one of the, the biggest things is actually it sounds so stupid when someone says to you, like, look in on the, like, actually focus on the pain when you're in pain because you're thinking yeah. it's the worst thing in the world. Our, all of our intuitions are just to solve the problem. To, and and, and that pain plays that role for us as humans to, you know, if we're injured, to do something about it and, and so forth. But obviously with chronic pain, you know, we've done what we can. And it's still calling our attention. And yeah, by definition, we don't want to feel it. So it can be so odd to just be patient enough just to, okay, but yeah, but what does it actually feel like now? What is going on there? And I do emphasize that it's okay to shift the attention away. So there's no obligation or no even tension around, oh, I need to really stay with the pain. It's like, no, touch into it, see what it's like, feel it but also turn your attention away when you want to, back to the breath. Yeah, and I think a good realisation for me was that when, you, when, when, when you're in the pain, you know, you think it's your whole body, or for me it was, you know, the whole yeah. of my right yeah. side from my shoulder, elbow to the back. But when you actually yeah. focus on it, you realise it's actually little kind of, um, yeah. kind of pinpoints and, and then, right. and then yeah. you start to kind of tense it up and that's where the tension comes from. But if you can... It, it, I think it is really. I think the first stages of it are really hard to to, to look at it because, yeah. Yeah. a, I think a lot of us kind of think, oh, how on earth is this going to help me? And that's where the emerging science can give us some courage to actually try it. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. So how 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 did you get into mindfulness and meditation in the first place? Yeah, a long time ago, back in the 1980s, when I was a philosophy graduate student, um, I had a friend who had some familiarity with, with meditation. She had, you know, the intuition I might be interested. So she told me about it and, uh, uh, I was curious. I tried it. I did a seven day retreat, actually a silent retreat. And I practiced on my own a little bit. I had a book that had some guidance, you know, so I did try it some on my own and, and it seemed like it would be promising. Um, and so I, I you know, there were, things happening where I was, um, for me, it was more emotion, you know, just like anger or it kind of even anger connected with political issues, you know, it's like, wow, I'm, I don't feel that balanced. You know, <laughs> I wonder if there's a way to be more, more balanced, more peaceful, even while caring about things that are going on. So that was part of the motivation. And for me, it was, um, pretty quick process of realizing it's not flaky for me it, it really is interesting and promising and so um in the 80s i i did had the you know as, as a graduate student i took time to to do retreats and, and so forth and so it became a serious interest pretty quickly yeah i think what you're saying about the emotions is is interesting as well because it is a kind of similar thing with pain because because oh, yeah. you're yeah. looking you're kind of looking at that emotion and you can see I think especially with something like anxiety or uh, anger you can you can see it kind of rising up and you can see that actually you can look at it but not necessarily engage with it or let it run away with you it's really interesting yeah it's um, 
and and so with difficult emotions like anger, anxiety, fear, sorrow, and so forth. Um, the first of all, you know, we give ourselves a space, a situation, the meditation where we're not doing other things, right? We're not engaging, for instance, with other people where, you know, a part of our kind of role as a civilized person is to manage our emotions so we don't act out and so forth. And part of that can be not feeling it, right? Not even paying attention to it, just suppressing it. And so in the meditation, when I notice that I have some thoughts and then there's an emotion, we actually give ourselves permission to feel into what is happening. And we emphasize the, the, the visceral palpable component of the emotion, what is actually can be felt in our bodies and often in the torso, you know, there are some sensations. So with emotions, there's the, there are those sensations typically. There are also, of course, our thoughts, you know, the, the, what we're worried about, what we're anxious about, you know, what we're angry about. And so we don't try to get rid of the thoughts. We can't do that just by willpower, but we can shift our attention to our bodies, to what we feel in our bodies. And here, the process is indeed similar to working with pain. It's just tuning in to the actual sensations, not trying to adjust them, not trying to get rid of them. Um, and and so it, it can be done in daily life, but it also is something that we can practice in meditation. And and um, it, it can be as counterintuitive as tuning into the feel of the pain. It's just like, why am I sitting here just feeling my anger? And the, the answer is it really can work to give us more freedom in our response, right? And so it can be paradoxical, or it's not really, it's quite straightforward, but it can seem odd that, okay, I'm interested in mindfulness because I want to manage my anger or my anxiety better. And here I am just feeling into it, right? But lo and behold, this is again where the, the emerging science is supportive, that it really can give us more freedom in our response. How did you manage to implement teaching this um, when you first started to do that? How, what was the kind of reaction from from the universities and, and the pupils? Uh, what did that kind of look like? Yeah, when I first started teaching it, uh, first of all, I should say that I was slow to teach it. You know, I, as a philosophy, as I, when I started to meditate, I'd been a philosophy graduate student. I'd taught intro philosophy classes. And I, had, I remember this experience on one of the early retreats when, you know, I was clearly enjoying it. I mean, it was work and, and could be difficult work, but still, I for me, it was something I deeply enjoyed and valued. And I, it occurred to me, oh, I could teach this. And you know, it's interesting because I, at that moment, I something in me was like, no, I for me, it's more important, at least for a while, just to practice this so for myself and not to turn it into a role where I'm teaching for others. And so, I was kind of slow to to step into teaching it, but when I did. Um, I started on the campus uh, where I was at that time. I started a Friday night meditation, just let people know they could come. We would sit. I would give a few instructions based on what I knew. And and so it was very uh, low-key, you know, Friday night, people are busy, so I don't feel like you have to come every time, you know. And so it was just five people would come or 15 might come. And then by, I started the course for credit in 1998 and honestly that was 20 years ago already but even then I was surprised at the interest there was a lot of interest and and so um, 
I was chair of my department at the time, so I had the wherewithal to schedule the course. That's how the American system works. I didn't hide it from my colleagues, but they'd elected me chair. They knew who I was, you know, and, and they were, even if they weren't interested, they, they didn't oppose it. And um, I made it a credible course. You know, there were standards. There, there were, um, I'd never grade the meditation, of course, but the people had to show up for things. And there was a normal sort of academic component of, you know, reading and writing papers and things like that. And so I still do an undergraduate course now like that. Now I'm in the psychiatry department here, part of the Semmel Institute for Neuroscience at UCLA. But uh, the course I offer is called Mindfulness Practice and Theory. It's four credits. Um, the core of it is to learn the basics of mindfulness meditation, uh, the sort of applications we've already been discussing, as well as there are, are ways of practicing mindfulness with other people. We call it relational mindfulness, where we we kind of change the social rules of the interaction a little bit so that there's more of an opportunity just to pay attention either as the speaker or the listener. So there's some games and activities that are optional parts of the course. And uh, I, you know, I don't assume everyone should do this. And that's, that serves me well in working with undergraduates um, because I love teaching it, I love sharing it, but I'm also kind of nonchalant about whether they should do it, you know? And it turns out many, many people are interested nowadays. Yeah, it amazes me that you that you, you were able to set up a system where you actually got academic credit for it. Yeah, that's interesting. Like, I was chair of my, the philosophy department at that time where I was at, and so that, and I had, I was respected, you know, enough that when I decided to offer the course, I was in a position to be able to schedule it. I didn't hide it from anyone, my colleagues, the dean. And yeah, there was enough open-mindedness in that situation that I was able to offer it. And then I did have, uh, you know, I didn't, I had some academic integrity about it, you know, and so it wasn't just a flaky course. And I um, uh, kept getting feedback from students and others about how to improve it. Uh, in the 20 years since then, of course, things have changed a lot, so that nowadays there's almost a little too much hype about mindfulness, and people are almost too interested, but obviously that's a good problem to have. Um, yeah. Do, do you see that as a kind of danger that it's, it is branded in some, some areas as a kind of one-stop cure-all approach to all of <laughs> yeah. <you? laughs> yeah, I definitely see that as a, as a potential problem. Uh, it's not really my job to worry about it very much. And, you know, here at UCLA, we 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 really take steps to, to try to maintain the integrity of, of the practices. Even though we teach in a secular way, non-religious, we also acknowledge the Buddhist roots for most of the practices that we teach and acknowledge that, wow, there's a deep tradition here. And there's not a one worldview that people need to adopt. And even in the Buddhist world, there's differing form their different opinions about some basic philosophical issues um but we m my opinion is we don't need a uh, overarching worldview and so it can be taught in an academic setting these basic practices where we don't have all the answers to say the least and we're, so we're in a context where there are more questions than answers even while the practical you know applications can be studied are being studied and um, and so I think that, that what we're doing here 
uh, as both the offering the courses with integrity, connecting them with legitimate scientific research. And then uh, also we have a year long training program in mindfulness facilitation for people interested in being teachers. And this is, we have 50 people from all over the world who, who are admitted to the program each year and they come from all walks of life, you know, but they're therapists or teachers or coaches, or we have some police officers who've been in the program, you know, lots of different types of people who, who want to kind of have, teach with integrity or share. And so we feel that a good job for us, you know, and there is a problem. Yeah. That uh, it's becoming so popular that, and, and also the principles are pretty simple, right? That someone can think, oh, I could share this and teach it. And, you know, I don't. I, they're probably not going to do much harm, <laughs> even if they don't have much experience. So, what what are the kind of key take home points that that the that the center has been able to prove where mindfulness really is helpful? So, you've obviously got the the example of pain that we discussed earlier, right? The pain management and the uh, the um, the um, working with difficult emotions. I mean, this is. It's, it's such a, fu- a fundamental area where, you know, abstractly, everyone would agree that there are more and less intelligent ways to respond to our emotions. You know, we all agree that, but actually bringing these specific techniques into education so that even children could be taught, you know, in, in, in a way that's appropriate for their age that there are ways of responding to your emotions. So this is an area that is very exciting. And and um, and then in other applications, more straightforward, one study was on uh, blood pressure. Does mindfulness, like a six-week mindfulness class, help manage blood pressure? And the you know it was a small study, but the um, results were encouraging. Yes, it can. Uh, we taught a, a, six, a six-week class um, looking at um, the uh, uh, seniors, older people with sleep problems, can mindfulness help them with sleep quality? Answer, yes. That was published in a good journal. Um, so there's there are num- numerous studies like that going on here at UCLA and elsewhere. Um, but the core of it, in my view, would be around both cultivating calmness, more settledness of mind, and also like managing the difficult states that come up more skillfully uh, you know and whatever the application and whatever the f- kind of the physical connection like the blood pressure is probably going to go through that mechanism of actually managing these emotions you know more skillfully that's, that's my conjecture yeah uh, but remember keep in mind i'm a philosopher not a scientist so I, i'm, a, I'm a la- apt to overgeneralize too quickly <laughs> and i've actually re- yeah so going on from that i've just finished yeah. a really interesting book where by uh, a guy called Richie Davidson and Daniel oh, yeah. and Daniel right. Gold right. and and they yeah. kind of distill all of the best science and say yeah. what's good science what's what needs to improve and what the kind of really good yeah. um, the benefits are and that's kind of a really good way if anyone wants to kind of get get a good overview and see see actually that that there is some really really positive uh positive science coming out um so uh, have you seen a change in the way that that people perceive the the undergraduate course that you're teaching is it more kind of popular now than than it was before or is it 
has it kind of just had a good reaction all the way through? It's It's been positive all along, but there's just more awareness now in the mainstream American culture that there are methods that are worth looking into. And, um, and of course, that comes partly because of the emerging science and because, because clinicians are more likely to recommend people to take a mindfulness class. So very often, both in the undergraduate class and then in the courses that we offer for the general public, you know, people often are there because the counseling center recommended it or their therapist or physician recommended it. And um, so, yeah, there's, it's becoming mainstream, I would say, very quickly here in America. That's really cool. And has there been much pushback against people who don't want to do it because they don't see it as a particularly secular practice or they associate it with one religion and they don't think it's compatible with theirs? Or That's an interesting question, Harry. It's like I don't see it much because I think that I'm, you know, one of my skills is presenting it in a way that doesn't raise those issues. <laughs> so... Um, I, other, you know, in other contexts, there might be more of a discussion about that, but I've always been keen to, and this comes out of my own practice, because I never have really had a, a, an overarching worldview about, it. and so teaching it in a, in a non-religious way without an ideology, although being very interested in the ideologies and the abstract issues as a philosopher, but teaching it in a way that's, that's quite practical. Uh, I rarely have those conversations with people who are who are wondering if, if they can do it because it might conflict with their religion. My experience has been much different, you know, having students who do have religious views and and reading their journals or their papers where they're talking about how it's deepened their f- religious faith, you know, doing the meditation. And I'm like, wow, that's a cool because that was not, I wasn't teaching you that and you figured it out on your own. And that's I really love it. And so uh, my my world does not involve that, you know, and honestly, I'm not too interested in those debates. You know, there are people kind of debating it, how, but that's, um, this is this is where I'm probably, one way to express it in computer science terms, I'm pretty bottom up with this, not top. So it's just like these, wow, there are some things we can do with our attention that have very interesting effects. And, and, and there, you know, cultivation of peace you know kind of cultivation of a more open heart of of more freedom in our lives i mean these are concepts that that obviously have been incorporated in the buddhist worldview and so forth but they're also concepts that people can connect with no matter what their worldview is and so to me it's i'm pretty radically bottom up when it comes to um if that makes sense, so to, when it comes to these practices and so forth. And that comes through when I teach. And so even if someone wants to come in and argue, I'll talk with them, but you know, I don't think there's a lot to argue about. I, I really like the argument of of it making you a better Christian or a better Jew. Yeah, oh, that was quite a nice surprise 20 years ago when I first started. Um, it was really interesting because, first of all, I was happy that, I mean, I didn't even know they had those views, you know. Yeah, they were just in the class and it was it was really satisfying to realize that I'm teaching in a way that's not setting up some artificial problem for them. I mean, obviously, there might be others who didn't sign up for the class for whom it would have been a problem. But that's, this is and I don't mean to be glib. I mean, this is all of these are areas for more you know discussion and being careful to respect the historical traditions and 
and also to respect how different types of practices within the Western religions do incorporate mindfulness and related things already one way or another. You know, I'm also interested in that. The, sorry, the, the ways that, that the, the Western religions probably have incorporated mindfulness practices under different names. And, and so that's, we want to be really open-minded about it and, uh, and help people realize, you know, if they've been praying, for instance, as part of their daily life, it may very well have, uh, we don't want to kind of downplay the significance of it. It may be a very, you know, whatever the kind of the, the metaphysics, you know, that's separate from the actual psychological effects that practices like that may be having for people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just to kind of wrap things up, what, what, what does your kind of personal practice look like and, and what would be your top tip to, to other people to kind of stay mentally healthy? Oh, wow. Um, my practice, I have meditated regularly for 30 years. Uh, I practice what I preach. <laughs> you know, the, the, uh, the, the, I don't, I, uh, the, the, when I talk about radically bottom up, I'm definitely kind of grounded in, in my own practice. I don't try to teach people my experience, but when I do teach a basic method, it's almost always something that I have practiced in like what we discussed earlier in the conversation about the basics of mindfulness is the core of what I teach. Um, yeah, the top tip, um, the, the, it, it doesn't have to be, it's not esoteric. It's, it, it can be powerful, but it's not, it's something that's accessible to people, to ordinary people. It takes some effort uh, and, and intention. And yet if someone is interested, I do have a lot of confidence that it's something they can incorporate in their lives. Awesome. And just to finish, where can we find out more about what you do? And yeah, so, uh, easiest, easiest, just Google UCLA Mindfulness and our center pops right up. The, the website um, is uh, it's the Mindful Awareness Research Center at UCLA. And uh, we have free guided meditations there online that people can use we do have online courses that people can take from all over the world and um, i am happy to be in touch so if someone wants to um, contact me through that that would be fine brilliant marvin that's been absolutely fascinating thank you thank you harry pleasure talking with you hi everyone hope you enjoyed this episode just a quick reminder that although we may find what we talked about useful, if you're suffering your mental health, always reach out to your local GP or health professional or contact a charity like Mind on 0300 303 599. If you need urgent help, please visit A&E or call NHS 111.